This program is brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U at Stanford University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu. My great pleasure at this time to introduce the chair of this uh, next panel, who is also going to be providing um, one of the panel presentations. And then I'll ask Scott Sagan to introduce the, the rest of his uh, panel as they, as they come up. You've already been introduced to David. He'll introduce Rebecca. A few words about Scott's background. I've known Scott for some time because we've both had an interest in organizational aspects of safety in different kinds of organizations. Um, excuse me. Scott is professor of political science and co-director of Stanford Center for International Security and Cooperation. Uh, before joining us, he was a lecturer in government at Harvard and served as special assistant to the director of the Organization of the Joint Chiefs of Staff in the Pentagon, and as a consultant in the Office of the Secretary of Defense and at Los Alamos Laboratories. Scott has written several books um, and is um, an author of a chapter in a book which is coming out soon called Inside Nuclear South Asia. And so it's my great pleasure to introduce Scott Sagan to head up this panel. Thank you very much, Ray. Um, I've agreed to speak and also to have two of my colleagues speak about the question of the influence of culture on national security decision-making. And it seems to me that many of the issues that we were talking about earlier on culture and technology are uh, relatively easy cells compared to this subject. It is relatively easy to believe that culture can have influences on people's perceptions of gender, relatively easy, comparatively, to think that culture can have a strong influence on people's livelihoods and questions about economic development and transfer of knowledge in the economic development area, our second panel. But does it have an influence on the hard security issues that we face today? And if so, how? Um, I'll be speaking on nuclear doctrine. Rebecca Slayton, lecturer in the program on science, technology, and society, will be talking about decisions about what kinds of force, what kinds of technology to develop in the defense area, and how different communities of scientists and engineers may differ in the way they think about those subjects. Um, Rebecca has a background in chemistry, history, and social science, so is extremely well placed to do the kind of work that she's doing. Uh, as a lecturer in STS here at Stanford. And lastly, David Kennedy will be speaking uh, about culture and the issues that he spoke about earlier uh, today. And he needs no introduction because he was introduced uh, just an hour and a half ago. So let me jump right into my talk, which is about how to explain why different states who have acquired nuclear weapons have different doctrines for using them. And there is in the political science literature, you may want to sit, turn around so you don't have to strain your neck. Um, uh, come sit up in the front. Right. Three, three different sets of explanations. The first is a standard realist argument that says that states, governments, do not, are not, um, it doesn't really matter what their domestic constraints are what their regime type is, the structure of the threat that they face will determine how they behave. The strong do what they will, the weak do what they must, 
and in the dog-eat-dog -dog world of international politics, states act very much alike. And if they don't, they'll learn because of their negative experiences. If culture or domestic politics constrains them too much, they'll learn to adjust or they'll be punished for it. With the selection mechanism, as you see, firms may not all behave rationally. If they don't behave rationally, they get punished by a market. International politics behaves in the same way. A second set of theories, of which I am most uh, often identified, uh, is in the area of organization theory that would argue that militaries have particular biases that influence the way they think about the use of force. They have biases to prefer offenses to defenses because offenses let them structure their military plans and implement their military plans and deal with uncertainty and force an adversary to respond rather than implement his preferred plans. This is an old view going back to the principle of, of, uh, of offense or the principle of the initiative, as Jomini would have put it. And while I believe that military organizations and officers tend to be, if anything, less prone to the use of force than do civilian authorities, an issue that came up earlier in David Kennedy's talk, I believe for some of the same reasons that military, professional militaries tend to be biased in favor of preventive uses of force. That is, if you believe that war is inevitable in the long term, or is highly likely in the long term, then you have a bias to believe that you should use force when you are ahead and not wait for an adversary to catch up. That can influence nuclear doctrine as well as other kinds of doctrine. And then lastly, there are cultural theories that argue that a set of moral norms or historical traditions coming out of a state's or the, the leading views within a state colors the way that leaders will approach questions of how to use nuclear weapons once the state acquires them. And cultural theories of a second sort, a form most closely identified with John Meyer in the sociology department here, would argue that culture has a second kind of effect by encouraging smaller, weaker governments to look at bigger, more prestigious governments and copy and mimic them, not rationally learning, as a realist would argue, about what is successful and what is not, but rather adapting the norms even if the conditions are inappropriate. And I'd like to walk you through a couple examples of how these different lenses compete with one another, sometimes can complement one another, in both understanding the Cold War experience and understanding the effects of the spread of nuclear weapons into new states. And that's going to be the bulk of the talk. So the basic realist explanation, I think, would explain at one level a interesting observation is that states that have conventional in, uh, weaknesses are facing a state with superiority have a structural incentive to threaten to use nuclear weapons first to compensate for a conventional inferiority and a state that has conventional superiority has a structural incentive to say that I have a no first use policy. I will put the onus of escalation 
with all the potential horrifying effects that that could have onto an adversary. And so it is the, from this perspective not surprising that during the, the Cold War, throughout the Cold War, Russia, the Soviet Union had a no first use policy. The U.S. facing Warsaw Pact superior conventional capabilities, it believed, had a first use policy. And similarly, in South Asia, the Pakistani government has insisted since 1998 that it has a right, indeed has a policy of using nuclear weapons first, is interested in looking at uh, all sorts of different limited uses of, of force, while India maintains, although you'll see some, some exceptions to this momentarily, that it has a no first use policy, would never use nuclear weapons first. It's easier to say when you have conventional superiority. But beyond that basic similarity, I think there's some very interesting cultural and organizational observations that one can make. The first, just give a couple examples. I noted that militaries have a bias, I believe, in favor of preventive uses of force. That if you're going to use force, do it while you're strong. If the other side's catching up, a corollary of the Powell Doctrine is use this before they catch up, if you want to have superior force. It is not surprising, therefore, that after the Truman administration ruled out after an extensive discussion, the use of a nuclear attack against the Soviet Union to stop them from acquiring or building up nuclear weapons in 1950, that the U.S. Air Force in particular, which had wanted to do that, had supported doing that, didn't change their beliefs. They just went underground. One particular incident occurred in 1950 when the uh, three-star general in charge of the U.S. Army Air War College uh, announced on the front page of the New York Times that he wanted to have an immediate attack against the Soviet Union to precipitate a preventive war and gave interesting religious views about how he could justify this. Um, he was fired for that, but this particular belief continued on well into the Eisenhower administration. Indeed, in 1954, the chief of staff of the U.S. Air Force issued a quite um, strong classified letter to his fellow chiefs saying that we are betraying the nation by not getting the President of the United States to initiate war against a proven set of barbarians in the Soviet Union. Eisenhower rejected that advice, but nonetheless, how fortunate that we have m civilian control of the military in this particular period of time. Similarly, militaries have a, a desire for offensive big, overwhelming uses of force. Um, a number of years ago, I was able to get the first PSYOP, the Single Integrated Operations Plan Briefing to President Kennedy, declassified. And this was Kennedy's efforts to try to get the U.S. military to have some flexibility in the use of nuclear weapons. If we're going to use them first, we don't want to use them as massively, he thought. We want to have presidential control. And PSYOP 62 was given to him by General Thomas Power, shown here reviewing the troops with the president. And in response to Kennedy's request for more options, he was given 14 options. The first option was to launch all U.S. nuclear weapons against every country in the Sino-Soviet bloc. The second option was to wait one hour to alert more forces and launch every one that was on alert against all countries in the Sino-Soviet bloc. The third option was to wait two hours to alert more forces and launch all of them against every country in the Sino-Soviet bloc. It was 
so disturbing that when um, Powers briefed this to Secretary Robert McNamara, McNamara noted that even though Albania had broken away from the Sino-Soviet bloc, Albania was the first country hit in the attack because it had air defenses that we needed in order to uh, create openings so we'd get more bombers to go in through the southern border. And Thomas Powers told uh, Secretary McNamara, I hope you don't have any relatives in Albania, sir. So it is good, in this sense, not to let military biases influence them. Is this problem occurring in the developing world as new states acquire nuclear weapons? I believe it is, and here we should be very thankful that the first country that gets nu got nuclear weapons in the South Asian rivalry was India with civilian control rather than Pakistan with military control of its government. You can see even then military influences can be strong. In 1986, the Indian government authorized General K. Sundarji, the chief of staff of the Indian Army, to have a large-scale military exercise called brass tacks along the border in Rajasthan with, uh, the Pak, uh, pa along the Pakistani border. The Pakistanis feared that this military exercise might cross into the border, and so they put forces on the other side, creating a major crisis that caused both governments to use uh, very senior level political authorities to try to get both forces to pull out. When I first read about this, I, I wondered whether this was similar to the U.S. case of militaries perhaps not just doing this and getting out of control, but maybe deliberately causing a crisis so that the Indian Army could have an excuse to attack Pakistani's nuclear forces before they tested and got a larger nuclear force. We now know that Jerusalem Darji did advocate attack against Pakistan, including against its nuclear forces, saying that they're reacting to our innocent exercises. They must have evil intent. That before they attack us, we need to preempt them. So not to do that and then complain that the young boy Rajiv Gandhi had chickened out. And his deputy chief of staff, serving under Sundarji, has now acknowledged that this was a uh, this was a situation for fourth war planned by the chief staff of the Indian Army against the Pakistani nuclear force. Therefore, it is fortunate that you have civilian control, but you have to con continually maintain it. And here, I think it is worrisome that when Pakistan got nuclear weapons from some civilians, but often in my research talking to individuals in Islamabad, you saw many people in the military who argued that getting nuclear weapons gave them a shield by which, behind which they could actually take more aggressive actions. So we know that even though there was ostensible civilian control of the government in Pakistan, that the military planned, and then without a thorough briefing of Prime Minister Nawaz Sharif, snuck Pakistani armed forces disguised as Mujahideen into Indian-controlled Kashmir in the winter of 1999 and started shelling the town, the barracks, and the roads around the city of Kargil. It was later exposed that these were not Mujahideen, but were actually Pakistani troops disguised as this. And it took a special effort by Nawaz Sharif, the prime minister, fearing that India would respond by attacking not just the forces up in the hills of Kashmir, but also go into Pakistan itself, 
Uh, he had to come to the United States and under the political cover of Bill Clinton saying, yes, we will help you uh, address questions in, in Kashmir pulled out. But nonetheless, it is worrisome that the Pakistani army that had instigated this through the chief of army staff, then General Pervez Musharraf, still insisted that there was no chance that this would escalate. The Indians will never uh, uh, attack inside Pakistan itself. Let me turn briefly in just a few minutes to moral taboos. And the argument here would be that a government or individual leader who has a strong cultural, religious, or personal belief that nuclear weapons are immoral might influence doctrine in a very different way, saying not just no first use, but no use whatsoever. The one case that I know uh, of this um, that had a, a pronounced influence was, ironically, Ayatollah Khomeini, who inherited a nuclear program from the Shah of Iran and canceled it, thinking that this was wrong according to Islam. Score one for cultural theories. And yet, when Saddam Hussein discovered that the chemical, biological, and nuclear programs had been stopped, it gave him extra incentives to use chemical weapons against Iran during the Iran-Iraq war. And indeed, just recently, uh, the Iranians declassified the Ayatollah Khomeini's letter saying that they were going to accept a ceasefire because they had to do so, they had no choice, but that this means that we need to reverse our earlier position. And Raf Sanjani, when he was Speaker of the House, uh, made the statement much more vigorously. Score a point for the realists, saying that if you behave excessively on moral principles in a world in which you facing adversaries who might not, you may be punished for doing so. Nina Tannenwald, a political scientist at Brown, wrote a book when she was here at CSEC a number of years ago talking about the nuclear taboo in the United States. And I'd be interested in people's responses to this. And she has a wonderful case study saying, well, it's one thing to say nuclear weapons aren't used when another state can retaliate against you, but what about cases where they can't. In the Gulf War in 1991, the use of nuclear weapons against Iraqi armed forces out in the desert would not have created collateral damage and would not have escalated because they didn't have an ally who was giving them a nuclear umbrella. And so she argues that moral taboos influenced the United States, citing such talk as John Sununu's or, again, Colin Powell's statement to then Secretary of Defense Dick Cheney, who told him they had to plan for nuclear weapons just in case, said we're not going to let that genie loose. And yet a realist argument would say, was it moral norms, a taboo, or was it our effort not to create incentives for others to get nuclear weapons and use them? That is a more precedent-setting concern. And here's a quote from General Charles Horner saying, well, on the one hand, only people who don't have conscious, conscience might think about using these weapons. On the other hand, we're not using them because it's about India and Pakistan having nuclear weapons. We're trying to color their views about what 
is useful and what is not. And I'll just conclude here, but here is where I think our behavior and statements that the United States has made in our doctrine does have an influence on others through this so-called mimicking or copycat effect. And here I note that the Indian government has claimed, as it always has, that it has a no first use doctrine. During the Cold War, the United States promised the non-nuclear weapon states that we wouldn't use nuclear weapons against you except for the Warsaw Pact exception saying that if we are attacked by a non-nuclear state in conjunction with a big nuclear rival of ours, we might still use nuclear weapons against them. India, when it announced its draft doctrine, took the language out of our statements and included it in their statement, despite the fact that they don't face a nuclear rival, or they don't face conventional powers that could attack them uh, that are allied to a nuclear rival. Similarly, they more recently in 2003 have announced that they have a no first use doctrine, but hold open the right to use nuclear weapons against any state that uses chemical or biological weapons against us. Again, almost a complete quote from the United States' new nuclear doctrine. I'm not saying that the United States has always and directly tried to encourage nuclear proliferation. Of course we have not. But I am concerned that states in the very beginning of their experience with nuclear weapons, and here you see both a picture of the Pakistani plastic mountains that they have around airports in their major cities glorifying their test site. And you see a similar picture um, of the celebration of the uh, bikini uh, nuclear tests in the US military, that rather than trying to stigmatize the use of the nuclear weapons and encourage other people to adopt that view, current US nuclear policy, unfortunately, to my mind, often has the opposite effect. I'll conclude there. Rebecca. Thanks very much, Scott, for the very interesting talk and the introduction. And thanks to all of you for coming today. Um, I'd like to start by sharing one of my favorite cartoons explaining the National Missile Defense System. You see Murphy's finger is coming up from North Korea or someplace, but my finger comes up and hits Murphy's finger. That's how the missile defense system will work, if it works. And this cartoon captures my central question for today. How do we know whether a complex system will work or not? These systems weave together complex social and technological systems into very messy and complex relationships. And ultimately, they're socio-technical systems which can become unpredictable for at least three reasons. First, as you get more and more complex systems, there's more and more opportunity for unexpected interactions. So this image up here shows the Chernobyl disaster site. And Chernobyl melted down not because nobody had thought about safety or because the operators did something wrong, but because there were unexpected interactions between the power plant and the electricity grid, and no amount of testing a system will eliminate the possibility of unexpected interactions in a very complex system. 
But complex weapon systems are risky and, and unpredictable for an even more fundamental reason. They have to operate in conditions that are often unpredictable by the design of an intelligent adversary. So this image shows uh, SCUD missiles coming in over Tel Aviv in 1991 in the Gulf War and Patriot missile interceptors trying to come up and stop them. But the interceptors missed most of the SCUDs we now know because the Iraqi engineers had retrofitted the missiles and they behaved in an unpredictable way. And so this kind of unpredictability makes the question of adequate testing in a weapon system very speculative. And finally, operators often have very little time to decide whether a complex system is trustworthy or not. So for example, if you were stationed in the National Missile Defense System and you saw a sign of a missile from North Korea, you would have a maximum of maybe three to five minutes to decide whether we were really under nuclear attack or not. And if you were in the Patriot Missile Defense System, you would have maybe 15 seconds to decide whether you should fire when you saw warning of a threat. And so all of this means that we want to rely very heavily upon experts and scientists to tell us what weapons can and, cannot, can and cannot contribute to national security before they're actually deployed. So then the question is, how, how can experts speak as authorities on very unpredictable systems like these? And today I'm going to discuss this as uh, how, how experts make judgments at the intersection of technology and culture. I'll discuss how experts use disciplinary tools to frame weapons, codified rules and professional institutions, and the tools at hand shape the ways that experts and their publics think about risk in very important ways. But disciplinary tools also help experts generate public authority by suggesting boundaries between science and politics or technology and society. And in the US political culture, boundary work is a ritual of advising. It's a means of demonstrating objectivity. We want our scientists to state just the facts and leave value-laden decisions to the policymakers. Yet complex weapon systems are unpredictable precisely because they intertwine technological and social considerations. So experts can't even begin to answer the question, will it work, until they make a set of assumptions about what an adversary might do or what a threat might look like. So here I'm going to argue that this advisory culture and this demand to separate the science and the politics and the technology and the society and to speak to purely technological considerations limits the ability of experts to speak as authorities on the risk of complex weapon systems. And to illustrate this, today I'll discuss public debate over the Star Wars Missile Defense Program, which was President Ronald Reagan's proposal to render nuclear weapons, quote unquote, impotent and obsolete. And the rest of my talk has three parts. First, I'll describe the Star Wars speech, demonstrating that it drew very strongly upon powerful cultural narratives of technological progress. And in the second and third parts, I'll discuss how experts attempted to counter the technological progress narrative using different kinds of disciplinary tools, physics and computing. Experts used physics to frame defenses as simple and idealized weapon systems. And by contrast, they used computing to frame missile defenses as complex and buggy information systems. And we will see that the disciplinary tools of computing enabled experts to analyze the risk of catastrophic failure in a Star Wars system, but not to bring closure to debate about reliability. So to start out, let me explain what experts were up against when they were trying to frame Star Wars. In March of 1983, President Ronald Reagan delivered a nationwide televised address that has come to be known as the Star Wars speech. And he claimed that technological progress could shift US nuclear strategy away from offenses to defenses. And he called upon the scientific community to give us the means of rendering these nuclear weapons impotent and obsolete. 
So when reporters learned that this missile defense system would include exotic weapons in space, such as lasers, they promptly dubbed Reagan's proposal Star Wars. And this soon became a massive research program rather than a working defense, the Strategic Defense Initiative, which consumed up to $4 billion per year and stalled arms negotiations in the mid-1980s. Now, experts unanimously agreed that it was impossible to build the leak-proof shield that would be necessary to render nuclear weapons impotent and obsolete. And even a Reagan Commission study, the so-called Fletcher Report, acknowledged that a 99.9% .9 effective shield was not achievable. But the study was presented to Congress and to journalists and the public with so much technological enthusiasm that it obscured this conclusion. So one of the challenges for scientists trying to d explain that missile defenses would not make nuclear weapons impotent and obsolete was to demonstrate that technological progress had limits. And they needed to demonstrate not just difficulty, but impossibility. So one of the first groups to take this on was the Union of Concerned Scientists. And they used the disciplinary tools of physics to frame defenses as simple idealized weapons, which would try to intercept nuclear missiles in each phase of flight, which is shown up here. And to counter the technological progress narrative, they granted that all of the proposed defensive weapons could be developed and would work properly, perfectly, in fact. They nonetheless demonstrated that offensive countermeasures could overcome the system at each phase of flight. So for example, as the system went through mid-course, which is shown right up here, it could deploy all kinds of balloons and decoys and hide the real warheads, which are shown as triangles up there. And they relied heavily upon the quote-unquote immutable laws of nature and basic scientific principles to produce authority behind this analysis. So for example, they could show from the laws of physics how much time it would take for a laser to kill, uh, a laser in space to kill a missile in its boost phase. And I've shown that equation here. And scientists used this formula to show that the defense could be easily overwhelmed by countermeasures, like increasing the hardness of missiles or just increasing the number of missiles. So this study became somewhat contested. Scientists at the National Weapons Laboratories claimed that this was quote-unquote politicized science, but they had a hard time arguing with the American Physical Society, which eventually conducted a study on the physics of directed energy weapons. And the APS concluded that directed energy weapons would not be useful for defenses for at least another 20 years. And critics of this report were increasingly marginalized because the laws of physics enabled experts to conduct boundary work to claim an objective and non-political consensus. So these reports uh, gained a tremendous amount of press coverage and they were very influential so that by the mid-1980s, the uh, best known uh, critique of Star Wars was that it defied the laws of physics. And by contrast, computing was largely ignored during the first two years of public debate about missile defense. But eventually, experts did begin to use software engineering to publish analyses of the Star Wars computer system. And importantly, software engineering suggested not simple idealized weapon systems, but a complex buggy information system. And so this image is taken from uh, Scientific American, and it shows all of the things that a computer would have to do, and, and software. It would have to help detect weapons, it would have to help uh, discriminate real warheads from uh, decoys and other things that might be with them, it would have to track the real warhead along with all the other decoys, assign weapons to targets, it would have to coordinate the overall battle. And it would have to do most of this without any kind of human intervention because there were very short time scales involved. So would this system be reliable? When they were analyzing this, they referred not to fundamental laws of nature, but rather patterns of production. So for example, 
they analyzed the amount of effort that would be required to produce the software for the Star Wars computer system. And this is an equation showing how that kind of calculation could be done based on experience in software engineering. And this chart shows that the Star Wars computer system would be more complex and require more effort than any computer system ever developed to date. It would require at least 10 million lines of code. And perhaps most significantly, the final stage of development, testing and debugging, would be very difficult to imagine. Since you couldn't stage trial nuclear wars, how could you prove that the system was reliable? But the strongest argument against the reliability of Star Wars software came in July of 1985, when the New York Times announced that a prominent software engineer by the name of David Parnas had resigned from an SDI panel on computing. And Parnas described a quote-unquote fundamental difference between traditional engineering products and software systems. He said, first, they were discrete state systems which could not be governed by well-understood mathematical functions, and second, he claimed they were too large to be exhaustively tested. And he argued that these two factors combined to make software systems inherently less reliable than other kinds of engineering products. And he called this a, quote, fundamental difference that will not disappear with improved technology, end quote. So here we see Parnas trying to make his claims authoritative by locating the problem in technology rather than in human effort. If there were fundamental technological limits, then smarter programmers or better management would not be able to produce reliable software. And the problem was that the computing community couldn't agree about whether there were these sorts of limits. And so members of the panel that Parnas resigned from repeatedly emphasized that there were no such fundamental laws. For example, in this highly publicized debate at MIT, the chair of the panel said there was no fundamental result saying that it is impossible to meet the SDI computing requirements. Now, at least one member of this audience didn't think that fundamental laws were really the point. He objected, you said building SDI does not contradict any fundamental law, but it does contradict Murphy's law. Nonetheless, panel members kept objecting that there were no fundamental laws that made Star Wars software impossible. And this enabled them to conclude that, in fact, reliable software could be built. Now, they did acknowledge that there was a problem with the software development for SDI. This was not an unchangeable natural problem. It was a problem of management. In particular, they argued that the systems contractors had all focused on the weapon systems rather than conceptualizing the system first and foremost as a complex information system. And they argued that if the systems contractors would only recognize that computing was the paramount, it's a direct quote, paramount problem of missile defense, then the system could be developed reliably. Now, this report did not end the controversy. In professional journals and congressional testimony and public debates, Parnas insisted that there were fundamental limits to the reliability of Star Wars software. Others felt that Murphy's Law was enough proof. And still others, however, argued that, quote, with reasonable progress in the state of the art, this is achievable. At the very least, there has not been adequate proof that this is not achievable. And that these kinds of comments were very common among computing professionals. And so here was a key difference between physics and computing. Many computing, computing experts felt that their public authority lay not in fundamental laws, but in their contribution to technological progress. And perhaps this is why professional computing associations never intervened and conducted a study of software feasibility to determine whether it could be developed reliably. So to summarize this comparison, there are very different kinds of authority that come out of the ways that physics and computing is used to frame missile defense. 
Experts used physics to frame missile defenses as idealized systems of weapons constrained only by the laws of nature. And this enabled them to argue that there would be limits to technological progress. The American Physical Society used these rules to bring a degree of closure to public controversy about defenses, to assert objectivity. And in contrast, experts used computing to frame missile defenses as complex information systems constrained by human organization. And thus, those who claimed that Star Wars software would probably fail catastrophically could be portrayed as pessimists rather than as objective experts. And professional computing associations never conducted a study demonstrating limits to software reliability, leaving the issue open to dispute. So in short, the laws of physics carried a kind of authority that engineering experience did not. And this does not mean that they have greater purchase on reality, because we have recent experience that demonstrates the risks of catastrophic software failure in missile defense systems and other systems. But how do we know if a complex weapon systems will work? Common sense might advise us to consider Murphy's Law and not to trust in highly technological solutions to the problem of national security. But the US political culture demands more than common sense from scientific advisors, more even than wisdom and wise experience. It also demands a, pe a peculiar kind of objectivity when defined in purely technical terms. And this means that in a culture of technological enthusiasm, the risks of, the risks of catastrophic failure are likely to be ignored until it is too late. Thank you. Take as much time as you would like. Well, I, I won't take long, and I want to take, but I want to take a few minutes to take seriously my brief to say something about culture as it relates to national security. And I do think there are some frequently unexamined and elusive uh, notions of culture that do in fact have something to tell us about why we get preoccupied as a society with things like the Star Wars missile defense and issues of nuclear hegemony and nuclear proliferation. So the simple question I want to ask is why and how is it that this society has evolved a certain set of uh, conceptions about what security means. Uh, I don't think everybody's definition of security is the same. I think it varies across cultures and time and societies, and it's the, it's the American definition of security, national security, that interests me here. Now, it happens we have a couple of uh, very uh, concrete benchmarks here, uh, recently published in the 2002 and then 2006 Bush administration national security strategies which uh, lay out some very concrete definitions of what the current administration, at least, thinks are the constituent uh, elements in uh, the uh, reigning concept today of national security. For example, the 2002 document says that it envisions an American military that will be lighter and more lethal, more mobile and agile, and capable of f f uh, firing accurately from long distances, and will dominate the so thoroughly dominate the militaries of all other societies that they will no longer have an incentive to even develop their military capacity. That's how dominant we will be. Um, the National Security Strategy Statement in 2006 says that the fundamental character of regimes matters as much as the distribution of power amongst them, which is a radical revision of the classic realist doctrine uh, hammered out at the 
uh, Peace of Westphalia in 1648, which made a very, drew a very sharp, bright boundary line between the internal character of regimes and the way they behaved in the international arena. That is the essence of the whole system of realist thinking about international policy. So we have in this society some very extravagant definitions of what national security means to us. And the question I would just like to pursue briefly is, where did these uh, very, very large conceptions of uh, national security come from? And I want to reference three scholars who have thought about this issue in one degree or another. Um, most of them, I think, will be familiar to you. The first is Henry Kissinger, and the second is George F. Kennan, about whom a new biography by John Lucas has just been uh, published. And the third is an historian who is not usually associated with matters in national security policy, but wrote a rather singular essay, I think, that is quite instructive about this. His name was C. Van Woodward. Um, Kissinger has argued repeatedly, many different places, that the United States has had a singular historic and distinctive historical experience because it grew up for so long, such a long gestation period of its early national history and on into the national middle age even, uh, when it had no enemies to fear of any consequence on the North American continent, and neither did it have any very realistic fear of intervention by powers overseas because of the insulating effects of geography, particularly the two oceans. So in Kissinger's view, this, this cultivated in the United States a very dangerous and problematic attitude, as he has put it many times, that the United States alone among great powers or great uh, societies could cultivate the illusion that it could choose whether or not to engage in the international system. And he thought this was illusory, that there was no avoiding that choice, but the peculiar circumstance of American history and isolation and what Woodward eventually would call free national security, national security achieved without any expenditure of from the military or other national resources, cultivated this, uh, this propensity toward a kind of isolationism or a reflex uh, to withdraw from the international system or to insulate oneself from it. Uh, George F. Kennan, in uh, a famous essay in that little book, uh, American Diplomacy, 1900 to 1950, published in 1950, began as the Walgreen Lectures at the University of Chicago and is one of the founding documents, I suppose, or most studied documents of the Cold War era, uh, began with the propensity of the United States toward isolationism and tried to argue against it, as did uh, Kissinger. Kissinger thought history had produced an isolationist tendency in American society. Kennan begins with the fact that America is often isolationist. And he develops a wonderful metaphor that's uh, been heard in the classrooms of this country for the last two generations about how the United States, he said, the United States way it behaves internationally often reminds me of the prehistoric dinosaur that sits uh, tranquil and docile and unperturbed in its mud bath someplace and is absolutely oblivious to the environment around it takes no interest whatsoever in regulating the ecological systems of the environment in which it finds itself. It's just isolated until it's provoked. And when it's provoked, uh, in uh, Kennan's metaphor, this dinosaur, which he uses as the metaphor for American foreign policy and international behavior, when it's provoked, it lashes about so destructively as to completely transform the environment in which it sits. It doesn't engage with it rationally and reasonably in a measured fashion, but in a highly uh, destructive way. There's the body the size of this room and a brain the size of a pea. Yes, <laughs> you know the passage well. I, I, all stu I, I, all I, students I, of the period know, know the passage well. Okay, what does what C. Van Woodward have to do with this? Well, I've already alluded to it. In a, in a uh, wonderful essay published in the 1960s on free security, he argued that uh, a slightly different argument from Kissinger's, 
that the United States had, in fact, enjoyed an, an, a really unmatched level of national security, no real threat of perturbation of its constitutional and legal system and its society and its institutions and so on, again, because of the uh, effects of geography. But he drew a slightly different conclusion from that observation than did Kissinger. Kissinger's observation was this predisposed the Americans to isolationism. Woodward argued a little bit, something a little bit different. He said this experience had predisposed the Americans to believe that the only acceptable kind of security was total and absolute unqualified security of a sort that other societies had never dreamt of, of achieving or having. But the United States, the citizens of this country had come to believe was their national birthright because they'd enjoyed it at little or no cost for well over a century of their national existence. So Woodward's, the, these combined uh, perspectives, I think, give us a clue as to why it is uh, that the United States has such extravagant definitions of what its national interests are and what degree of security is tolerable to it or acceptable to it. Uh, and again, these extravagant statements that you find in the, and I would say highly unrealistic statements, that one, using that term the way Scott Sagan has defined it in the, in the classic uh, sense of that uh, term as it figures in discussions of international affairs, the highly unrealistic and highly utopian and idealistic and overreaching ambitions uh, that one finds in places like the 2002 and 2006 national security statements are in fact, if we pay attention to people like Kissinger and uh, Kennan and Woodward, culturally conditioned. Uh, and it, be it becomes, it's a cultural reflex for us as a society when we engage in the international order to engage it insofar as we are able and our means make it possible for us in ways that seek to transform that order so that it will be, it will restore the conditions of the 19th century in which this country had absolutely no credible threat to its security to fear. Now again, it, this is what drives Kissinger nuts about these American uh, proclivities because he's schooled in a world, the European world of diplomacy, where security is never absolute, where it can never, you can never achieve a, a state of historical circumstances where you can relax about national security because you've so arranged the world that it will no longer be a problem, where you have to continuously engage diplomatically, politically, militarily, if need be, in the world in order to keep the system functioning, and where the business of diplomacy is a, the never-ending task of maintaining some acceptable equilibrium in the international system. The American proclivity, on the other hand, is far more utopian and unrealistic than that and thinks that there is an achievable state of affairs if only forces applied maximally enough and smartly enough where we will not have to worry again, as we didn't have to worry in the 19th century, uh, about our national security. So the, the, uh, I think this, this somewhere, it's very, this is the kind of thing that's very difficult to pin down empirically, but I do think somewhere it is that kind of dream which is nurtured out of the, in the historical experience of the United States, which feeds the fascination with things like the Star Wars system, an absolute missile defense that will render this, especially on the model that we've just heard described, where it's more or less self-generating, automatic, computer-driven, humans don't need to mess with it, and will restore this society to its imperturbable, inviolable security such as it enjoyed in the 19th century. So I just offer those as, as some thoughts from the perspective of how culture might figure here. Uh, I acknowledge this is no PowerPoint and it's not as technically precise as the presentations you've just heard, but I do think considerations at this level of abstraction are important for us to keep in mind. Thank you very much. We have 25 minutes for questions and comments. Um, could you please identify yourself uh, when you ask your question or make your comment? And with a small enough group here, I'd like to 
follow the um, one finger, two finger rule. If someone has a, a, a point following up directly on the point just made, you can jump the queue by raising two fingers instead of one. So could, who wants to start the questions or comments? Lynn. Hi, I'm Lynn Eden from CSAC. Uh, I want to uh, join Rebecca and uh, David's uh, uh, lunch keynote uh, together if I can. Um, both of you uh, actually end a little bit before the present, and I'm wondering what happens to your analyses when you take them all the way up. So in terms of uh, uh, culture, Rebecca, uh, the, the earlier period, uh, I think in, uh, how do I say this? I think there had been less experience with catastrophic software failures than, than we've had now. Mm -hmm. And I would think that it, uh, w a serious push uh, toward uh, Star Wars uh, again, if it, well, it is, go it is ongoing, but let's say a, a very public push would meet with different kinds of arguments that would resonate very differently. And I'm wondering if you have a way of thinking about that or handling how a, a public culture changes based on a, co a common set of experiences. Mm -hmm. uh, and for, uh, for David, um, uh, the common set of experiences, although experienced differently, of course, that you didn't discuss or that you alluded to but didn't go into in your lunchtime keynote is, uh, you did refer to the catastrophe uh, of the uh, Iraq war, but what about that catastrophe? Isn't this going to put tremendous political constraints uh, both on the military, on the president, uh, this president and, and the next president? It, so it, it seems to me in a funny way, you who couldn't be more aware of politics, in a sense have, by focusing on culture, have left politics out a bit. And what happens when you put politics back in? And, or how do you square the politics and the culture? Okay. Uh, okay, I, first of all, I would say that I think commonsensically, the, the computer disaster argument is persuasive, but that it tends to be neglected in official advising circles. It tends to be forgotten. So that there's a way in which the technologies are, are an encouragement to, to war, I think, in a way, which is how, sort of how I take your, your keynote address, David. Um, that, that we, we sell these technologies as black boxed, neatly functioning, um, empowering devices when in fact when we go into a new operating set of operating conditions we're effectively engaging in experimentation and we're not quite sure what's going to happen and there are disasters and you know we did have three incidents of friendly fire because of the Patriot missile defense system and we did have 28 people killed in Saudi Arabia in 1991 and you know there are other kinds of accidents that happen and those might be common sense but there's a tendency to forget them and to go ahead and deploy the technology first because there's this faith that's, that continues to be put in the technology and that even when there's learning, that, that the assumption is, oh, we've learned our lesson this time, we'll do better next time. We, we now know how to avoid this problem. But there's not an absolute limit, of course, to what we can do with technology. And it seems to me that that aspect of the culture hasn't changed, that faith. Is that? Yeah. Well, then I'd, I'd say a couple of things. Um, and, and this is a lot of speculation about the future, therefore it doesn't have a deep empirical basis, but it's, it's just kind of my best extrapolation. It does seem to me that 
we will, in the short term, in the next uh, few years, see some kind of reprise of what happened in the immediate post-Vietnam era, where the military, in particular, will once again look for means to ensure that they are not again uh, misused. Uh, the Abrams uh, doctrine uh, didn't prove very effective, particularly as, as I said earlier, as it was compromised by the, all the implications of the RMA. So what, what exactly will be the instrument to which they will look or that they will try to craft to make uh, political decision-making more prudent when it comes to using that instrument in the future? I don't know. Uh, but I think we, we will see a debate about that. It'll be highly political. Um, still more immediately, with respect to uh, the Iraq War itself um, I, and how, the, how politics might uh, play out in the future of that uh, episode, I, I go back to a point that actually Scott and I were discussing just between the two sessions here, in which he, he made a very interesting point that I suppose in the last analysis has to do with the implications of the famous phrase, in vain. Some of you remember that Ernest Hemingway said he, that, was, that was one of the terms at the end of World War I that he couldn't stand to hear again because it had been so profane. But Scott made a very interesting point that <clears throat> to the extent that we stick through, uh, stick with uh, misadventures like the Iraq intervention, uh, the, the sticking with them is often justified by the notion that we can't let the sacrifices already made have been in vain. Okay? It's sort of a sunk fund theory of why you keep going. Some might say it's an instance of throwing good money after bad or good lives uh, after bad. That doesn't quite work. The analogy doesn't quite work that way, but you, you get the point. Um, but Scott made a very inter interesting observation precisely because of the demography of the armed forces that we have and because of the relatively small number of casualties and their incidence in certain communities, uh, that it might be easier for the public at large to say, what do you mean in vain? We, none of ours have been lost. This may be a pretty cynical reading of how the thing might play out, but it, it, it might just to that degree make uh, extrication from Iraq somewhat easier than it might have been otherwise. Who was it at a recent seminar here did a calculation of what, what the death rate in Iraq would be if the wounded to kill ratio was what it was in Vietnam? It's Colin Cowell yeah. uh, from Georgetown University. Very interesting calculation. As I remember it, uh, it, it because this is another technological implication of the, our current situation, actually, that because of advances in medicine, particularly field medicine, and, and the ability to get medical care quickly to wounded personnel in theater and take care of them, state of the art, so on, so on. Uh, we've, we've drastically changed the wounded to kill ratio, which in Vietnam, whatever it was, if, if we were at that ratio today, we would have something approximating 20,000 dead. So we've shifted the burden of uh, casualties from, uh, from mortality to wounded. So again, just to that extent, we've, we've weakened the in vain argument, uh, or not in vain argument, because the mortality is loud, it's really loud. And you know all the abuses that uh, Walter Reed and so on about the wounded and the prosthetic device. So that's bad enough, but it's not as loud as mortality. So we we may we may have diminished the valence of the not in vain argument uh, going forward. Can I follow up on that really quickly? I was really struck in your talk by the the fact that we have a tenfold reduction in the uh, fraction of the GDP that is now being spent on national security because. In the area of uh, science and technology research and development, we are as at high a level as we were now as we were in the late 1960s. And, and the reason I say that now is that there, there's a hidden cost to that that I think 
people are not recognizing that there is a cost to civil society that isn't just um, about foreign intervention, that it is, it's a material cost. There are kinds of research and development that are not being done for civilian purposes because this money is being spent on research and development for the military. And that's something that I think often gets, yeah, gets hidden yeah, when we're point. talking about saving American lives abroad in the military. Good point, yeah. Although again, the, there's that, just that underlying fact of a 13 plus trillion dollar economy. That, that creates huge margins on which you can do all kinds of things before the effects are felt. And yet nearly 70% of the federally funded research and development is going into military research and development as opposed to civilian yeah. interests. Wait, 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 wait for the microphone, please. Uh, for David, uh, for David Kennedy, um, hasn't the 9/11 event sort of forever eliminated our free defense and our ability to really have an isolationist view? And do you see a path forward from the dinosaur response to a more diplomatic and reasoned response, both to international uh, uh, events as well as to homeland security? Actually, I, I have a different uh, heretical uh, view of the matter. Um, and it does, my appraisal of 9-11 and its effects, and it does go to reinforce, I think, the, the general point I was making a moment ago about the, the dinosaur effect. Th this is heretical to say, and I, I don't doubt some people in this room might strenuously disagree with it, but it seems to me that at the end of the day, our, we put on our green eye shade and get our most gimlet-eyed uh, posture and, and try to really analyze what 9-11 did. At the end of the day, it was no kind of threat to our national security as usually understood. It did not threaten our institutional structure, our constitutional heritage. Uh, there was no danger of someone imposing their will on us to constrain us to do business other than the way we were, do were doing business. It was a horrible event. I don't mean to blink it away or pretend that it wasn't awful, but it really was not any kind of deep challenge to what we usually mean when we talk about national security, which is the nation's capacity to determine its own fate and run its own affairs and control its own destiny and so on and so forth. So our reaction to that, in a sense, you might say, if, if one is to agree that we perhaps overreacted, uh, is maybe consistent with Kennan's famous dinosaur analogy, that uh, we, we won't settle for even that kind of a challenge to our sense of our national security, even though at the end of the day it wasn't, it was awful, I don't, it was reprehensible and evil and all the rest of it, but it did not really seriously undermine our national security. Len, you have a two-finger. Please identify yourself, everyone. Uh, uh, Len Weiss uh, with CSEC. Uh, I want to respond to that last comment of yours, uh, David. It, it's true, I think uh, demonstrably true, that 9-11 you know, didn't have a great effect on our national security as such. But the way it was used, I think, is, has produced a series of things which I think are certainly threatening to perhaps national security, certainly to, uh, to the Constitution. And uh, I, I mean, it's like saying, well, the Reichstag fire didn't really uh, affect Germany's national security, but look what it, what it was, how it was used and what, and what it produced. Well, I, I, I think the point is a good one. Um, but just to that extent, if, if, if the damage that's been done to our national security in the, still in the broader sense that you and I are agreeing to use here has been inflicted by our own actions, 
in response to 9-11, then we've met the enemy and he is us. And I mean, that, if, there, if there was, I, and I don't, I just finished reading Lawrence Wright's book, uh, The Looming Tower, and I'm not convinced there really was a truly focused geostrategic purpose to 9-11, frankly. But insofar as there was, you might say that the, the guys that inflicted the attack have got the upper hand. They're, 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 they're reaping the benefits of what they intended, if that was their intention. Pavel Podvig and then Dick Scott, so. Thank you. Uh, Paul Podvik from CSAC. Very briefly again, uh, to your point about national uh, threat, well, the, the, the United States did face uh, a serious threat to its national security during the Cold War, and that yes. was, uh, that was an I'm not sure exactly how it fits into your, your uh, the, the outline that you uh, drew, because I, I think that wasn't actually forced the, uh, the United States to, to deal with that threat, and it wasn't the free security and all. Well, a, a, I mean, a couple of things. A, a, a multi-hundred level or multi-thousand level ballistic missile strike against the United States is an existential threat. I mean, that's, that's about as, as unambiguous a threat to national security as you can imagine. Uh, but a, in, particularly in the early days of the Cold War, it was at least, some people at least thought it was plausible to imagine a, a, the extension of Soviet power over much of Western Europe. And actually, after all, we just fought World War II to make sure that a hostile power did not control Europe, so that I think that was a that was a, a plausible threat to national security at the in the sense that we commonly use that term, an arrangement that, as as Franklin Roosevelt said at the University of Virginia speech in 1940, should Hitler triumph in Europe, we would be fed through the bars like a prisoner in his cage by the masters of other continents. I mean that 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 was serious business, I think. So I, I think those I think those are qualitatively different uh, security threats. Dick? Well, <clears throat> just to continue the same discussion, I, I think a case can be made that, that uh, it did pose a, a national security threat, not just from the response, the over-response, the way in which the incident was used, but more generally, the, the kind of sea change it meant in the nature of what kind of possible enemies out there, the change from the possibility of non-state actors being able to do these kinds of things as opposed to the conventional things you handle diplomatically and, and with foreign aid and blah, blah, blah. You're talking about a whole new uh, uh, kind of situation you're confronting. So even though it was, and I'm not sure, you know, in many ways our responses exacerbated that and made that worse, but I think that even in spite of, of that, you, you really can think about this as, as really a new, a new situation that does threaten national security. Well, I, I would just say that, that it is new, um, I don't dispute. The, the degree of threat that non-state terrorist activity might pose to the, the, the truly important elements of our national security, which is our ability to control our own affairs, that, that is the ultimate definition of it, it seems to me, uh, is not at all clear. Um, I just don't, I can't draw an equivalence between the kind of threat I see emerging from those quarters and the more traditional threat that, that comes from enemy occupation of your territory and dictation of your form of government. Well, but I think you can make the, the connection quite directly if you think about what I was talking about and then what you were talking about. That is, if nuclear weapons in particular fall into the hands of a non-state actor for whom deterrence will be far more difficult then you face this kind of threat. In this way, the 9-11 attack 
reminds me of Saddam's 1991 attack. That is, he did it too early. That is, had the al-Qaeda waited until it had a greater capability, it would be much more difficult. The second point I wanted to make about the nature of that particular attack and that particular threat was a line that Sandy Berger used once, which he said that the real twin towers in 9-11 were not the World Trade Towers. The twin towers that Osama bin Laden wanted to fall are the governments of Riyadh and the governments of Islamabad. And that is still an uncertain, if you take a, a longer term perspective on this, it's not clear what, what's going to happen in either of those governments and whether the overall responses, not the domestic ones that you were referring to, but some of our foreign policy responses, will end up stabilizing those two governments or whether they will end up being radicalized in a Al-Qaeda type government. Chip, two finger. Can you identify yourself, please, for the audience? <laughs> My name is Chip Blacker, and I'm the director of the Freeman Spogli Institute Thank you. here at Stanford. Uh, Scott said it, but um, in one sense, David, I think 9-11 is not about 9-11. 9-11 is 9-11 is, is plus. And so when people ask me why this administration has done what it's done, I've said what, what drives these folks is not a replay of 9-11. It's the phone call to George Bush from his national security advisor at 3.30 in the morning confirming that the, the explosions in New York, uh, Boston, and Chicago are in fact low-yield nuclear weapons and prompt fatalities are somewhere, you know, somewhere between 150,000 and 500,000 and those areas are, are contaminated. So that's my own view is, is that is at least part of the explanation for, for why this administration does things which many of people of the United States find reprehensible, you don't, in, in policy terms, you tend not to look back. You tend to look forward and then imagine the coupling of the two worst things you can imagine, as Scott said, which is uh, the audacity of the 9-11 attacks mixed with weapons of mass destruction. Well, sure, and it's, it's why the most plausible of the several arguments offered for the intervention in Iraq was worked exactly that line of logic, that it wasn't Iraq was a direct threat, but that it might leak or transfer nuclear capacity to God knows whom. Elizabeth. Elizabeth, but, <coughs> excuse me, Elizabeth Petit-Cournel, Management Science and Engineering. David, in your, in your talk, um, you, in your first talk, you linked the development of precision weapons to the start of a conflict. And Scott, you looked at different aspects of a doctrine, and I would like to ask you if you could follow up on linking three aspects of a doctrine. The first one is the development of weapons. The second one is the start of a conflict. And the third one is the use of particular weapons in a conflict. Khomeini, for example, saying we won't use. So how do you imagine mechanisms, whatever protocols, to try to decouple the three, since you identified that coupling as one of the uh, most dangerous things that, uh, that exist in our system? Well, I'd, I'd just make the, an historical reference, then I'll bet Scott has more to say about this. But you, uh, one of you put up the picture of John F. Kennedy up there, and the, 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 the policy he pursued when he came into office was called flexible response for exactly this reason, that he thought he had two 
constraining an array of military options and that the, he would very quickly have to be, be forced across the nuclear threshold. So he looked for other ways to apply force well short of that and to have a whole array of things that uh, made possible what later became known as escalation. Now, you could argue it either way, whether that was in the, in the end a, a benign or a malign policy. It, it was benign in the sense that it took the, uh, uh, the first response being a nuclear strike off the table, but it was maybe mischievous in the sense that it, uh, it, it created a lower threshold for the application of military force and put you on the escalator over which you had very little control. So you eventually went to ever greater levels of force. So I mean, that, the, the history suggests that the latter was as true as the, as the former. Um, let me start trying to answer that by going back to John F. Kennedy as well. But the other thing that he did was to recognize that if current trends continue, we're going to have a world with 15, 20, or 25 nuclear weapon states within a decade. And so he was <coughs> instrumental, along with Ambassador George Bunn upstairs, in creating the Nonproliferation Treaty by which non-nuclear states could agree with each other that if you don't get the bomb, I won't get the bomb. And the IAEA was formed to provide warning to each other. And so this treaty, which is often seen as being between the nuclear states and the non-nuclear states, which it has that dimension as well, is primarily important because it reduces the incentive for potential rivals to acquire weapons for defensive purposes because of the uncertainty about what their neighbors are doing. Massively important. On the other issue about the start and the, the use of, uh, of weapons, um, people who are pessimists about the spread of nuclear weapons, uh, as am I, um, are sometimes accused of not recognizing the power of deterrence. And I actually reject that view because I think deterrence is powerful, it's just not all powerful. And that statistically, if you look at crises and incidents and you look at the likelihood of major power war, it seems pretty clear, and I think historians will argue this as well, from case study methods, that nuclear weapons do have a constraining effect on leaders. And yet, that is not all powerful. Not only are there exceptions where people get on a slippery slope and things can get out of control, but then there's this whole other set of problems that nuclear weapons create related to the Dick Scott Chip Blacker intervention. That once you have nuclear weapons in new states, it might reduce the likelihood of a war, but it increases the likelihood of a nuclear war, and it certainly increases the likelihood of terrorists getting nuclear weapons from a small arsenal in Iran, or 10 years from now, if this is not stopped in Iran, getting something out of Saudi Arabia, or Egypt, or Jordan, all the other states that are now starting nuclear power programs because of the nuclear program in Iran. So that's how I would link the use and the development question. Be in the front. And then this will be the last question. First, I just want to say that if I were one of the other states that didn't have nuclear weapons and saw the threat of the United States and both ver the verbal threats as well as the, the real threats, I would want to have that nuclear capacity again just because of the way we do treat states that, don't, that do have nuclear weapons. We uh, talk to them instead of bomb them. But my question is, why isn't there more discussion 
about the underlying causes of all this, these terrorist activities. And I'm talking about, I'm not talking about the religious stuff, I'm talking about the poverty, the, uh, you know, and the, um, the lack of economic um, in incentives for different countries, but, but basically, really the underlying causes of all of, all of, of why people join these um, groups, you know, why, you know, when there's so much high unemployment in areas, there's nothing for these young men mostly to do, you know, and so. I think there's a lot of, I could answer that, is that I think there's a lot of <laughs> debate and discussion about that, but the research is very mixed. Some people think that there's a strong relationship between poverty and terrorism, others, think that there are other causes and it goes the opposite way. So there are debates about this in this literature. Um, I'd refer you first to Jessica Stern's book on motives, and then there's a whole new debate that's coming out of Robert Pape's new book on suicide uh, terrorism and what are the roots causes. Is this a top-down use of a strategy by cynical leaders, or is this a bottom-up phenomenon based on uh, tendencies of, of certain societies cultural and or economic. And the, so there is a big uh, debate on, on the subject. But I just wanted to conclude by noting something back to uh, your reference to this, this so-called dissuasion strategy, which I think you referred to, about how remarkably audacious it is for a government to say that our goal of our nuclear, not just our nuclear, our overall military strategy, will include a policy of being so far in front of other countries that no one will ever want to compete. And that so-called dissuasion goal of the Bush administration got far less attention, it seemed to me, than, than it should have. And that was something that was a more radical shift in goals than we certainly as a scholarly community were able to recognize and communicate about it. And I think that does have some of the negative effects that you commented on. Although at the same time, that, that creates the circumstance in which so-called fourth generation warfare happens. It, just, it shifts the whole nature of warfare into a different dimension. On that note, we will reluctantly have to conclude this panel. I'd like to thank again our um, moderator, Scott Sagan, and our panelists, Rebecca Slayton and David Kennedy, for a very stimulating uh, lunchtime and, and post-lunchtime uh, session. Thank you so much. The preceding program was brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U and is copyrighted by the Board of Trustees of the Leland Stanford Junior University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu.